Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. Welcome to week two in our visual series. Uh, the concept is, is we're looking at art, uh, some paintings, photos, whatever kind of art uh, that you're going to help share with me. And some of you sent in art. Thank you. I'll incorporate that in the weeks to come. We're looking at it this. We want to see the visual so we can be the visual. You, you remember what we looked at last week? It was this picture. It was a Van Gogh, uh, a ink, pencil, uh, charcoal drawing of a man praying. And the point was, you see that visual so that that visual will stick with you. My hope was this, that some point during the week when you pause and pray, that that visual comes to mind so that you can be that and live that out. So that's where we were at last week. Uh, pictures like this, they're designed to inspire you to pray for this one. But not every work of art actually is designed to inspire us. Some art is actually designed to bother us because it's designed to reach inside of us and touch a place of us where most of us don't want to go. And that's what this next picture does. Take a look at this. Um, I'm going to make some observations for us. You make your own observations. Take a look at this. Let me highlight a couple things here. It's a woman kneeling, right? Her head is buried in her hands. She's wearing black clothes. There's a large storage trunk that she is leaning against that must be a part of the emotion she's feeling. It's a part of her story. There's a white wedding dress on the floor. Uh, next to the wedding dress, there's shoes that look like wedding shoes. There's a tool or like veil hanging out of the trunk with some flowers on the top that maybe might be a corsage. Now, we don't know if she's putting the dress away or taking the dress out. But it's just primary. That's, that dress is front and center. There's an empty bed in the background. And the background behind the empty bed is very, very dark. So here's my one question for you. Pick one word. One word that would describe what's happening here. Okay, think about it for just a minute. What's one word that you would say, this is, this is what's happening in this picture. I want you to give it to me out loud. Anybody over here? One word. Widow. Grief. Loss. Mourning. Sorrow. Something. Pain. Oh, good word. Good word. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic words. It sounds like we're kind of all on the same page. Um, I picked the word grieving. And maybe some of you said grieving because you're cheating and looking in your notes, right? Way to go. See, the smart ones over here. Um, grab your notes, and I want you to open to Matthew 14. I'll introduce this, uh, this painting to you. It is actually called The Wedding Dress. It's painted by a guy named Frederick Elwell in 1911. Uh, this painting is not meant to inspire us. Because often inspiration is like these, these positive feelings. And when you look at this, there are not positive feelings here. It, This is to help us grieve and get in touch with the experiences in our lives that maybe we've locked away because we don't want to talk about them and we don't want to touch them. 
So maybe God today is going to help us look at his word and get in touch with either something you need to grieve or have grieved, or maybe it's going to give you some tools to grieve in the, in the future. So Matthew 14, verse 13, there's two places in the book of Matthew where Jesus is grieving. We're going to look at, take a look at both of them. Uh, in this first one, this is the moment that Jesus learned that a family member of his had died. A family member of his had actually been murdered, and it's John the Baptist. John, it's most likely thought that it was Jesus' cousin. He's just six months older than Jesus. John had spent the majority of his adult years promoting this kingdom of God is near, so turn and repent. He lived in the desert, a harsh existence, calling people to repent. He prepares the way for Jesus to come. I hope this doesn't sound too irreligious, but if Jesus had a hype man, it was John. Jesus shows up on the scene. He's like, look, he points at Jesus. He says, behold, the son of the, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, he's the one who is promoting Jesus. And at one point he says, I must decrease and he must increase, meaning Jesus must become better known than me. Now, John had this conflict with Herod because Herod essentially took his brother's wife. Longer story, won't go into that. Herod didn't like his criticism. Herod throws him in jail. Through a long series of events, Herod has him beheaded, literally has his head cut off. And the disciples of John, his followers, come in and they take John's body to be buried. In Matthew 14, verse 13, walks us right into the shocking moment where Jesus hears about his murder. Reads this way. When Jesus heard what had happened, that's a reference. If you read up just a couple verses, it's the whole story of John being murdered. So when Jesus heard what had happened about John's death, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. I can't help but this moment, this story is the introduction to Jesus grieving. So I want to make this really, really clear. All the things I'm going to teach today, what I'm going to highlight today, are all points from this story. Today is not an all-encompassing teaching on how to grieve. We actually have a ministry for that. It's called Grief Share. If you want to be a part of that, we'd love to know. I mean, send us a note, send us an email, let us know how we can support you in that. We'd love for you to join that. I think it'll be uh, hopefully starting up again this fall. But there's not an all-encompassing teaching on this. I'm just going to point to some things that are highlighted in this so that it might help us grieve. So how to grieve our losses. Here's the first thing. I think we need to make room for grieving so we can grasp what's been lost. Grieving is actually this. It is grieving over things that have been lost. Go back to the picture real quick. That, That painting, that portrait. I want you to notice something in here. This is a total contrast between light and darkness. Look at what's light. The sun shines on the dress. There's no sun in the picture, but it looks as though the sun is shining through a window, lighting up that dress. But the woman's clothes, they are very dark. The backdrop is very dark. Don't miss this. Grief is like that. Grief feels dark. It feels heavy. It feels like you are lost in darkness. But the reason you're feeling that is because you have lost something that is beautiful, wonderful, good, that is symbolized by light. 
in this picture, there was hope and joy and relationship connected to that dress. And we don't know what happened. Like, maybe she never wore that dress. She's like, yeah, it hopes to be married, and, and I'm not, and therefore I'm packing it away. Or maybe she wore that dress like 10 years previously, and her husband ran off and joined the circus. Like, we don't know, Right? But I think this painting highlights something. There is something good and hopeful and joy-filled about life. And when we lose that, there is a darkness that comes in. My point is this. Jesus, in his text, when he hears this, for him to grieve, he's like, I got to get away to a solitary place so that he can grieve his loss. So I'm going to suggest this. How do you grieve? Like, we need to make room for grieving so that we can grasp what actually has been, has been lost. Now, I need to make some cautionary notes here. You ready? I want to caution you about how you interpret the Bible so that when you read it on your own, you don't make this mistake. A um, couple different types of teaching. One is narrative teaching. A narrative, what is it? It's a story, right? It's a story that has some points, but not always in a story does the writer tell you what the point of the story is. So it's a narrative teaching. There's other things that I would call a direct teaching. It's when Paul would write and say, listen, I want to tell you, there has been a resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is the hope of our future life. They're just stating what is true. Now, sometimes you get a narrative story that has a direct teaching after it that's like pointing to the truth in the story. Let me just give you an example of like how a narrative story could lead you in the wrong direction if you don't know the difference, okay? Just an example. Um, I could read the scripture we just wrote, right? Jesus withdrew by boat after this traumatic moment where, where he hears about John's death. And, and I could go to my wife and be like, babe, you know, there's some things in life that we're grieving. And if for me to be more like Jesus, I have to get away in a boat. We need to buy a boat. <laughs> and all the voters said, amen. Yeah, you know the best day and the worst day? is the same day. It's the day you buy a boat because it's a horrible investment. <laughs> um, you think, well, that's just stupid. Nobody would think that. Listen, I have known Christians a long, long time, and I've heard some crazy interpretations of Bible narratives. When you're reading the Bible on your own, just a cautionary word for you. Be careful that you're not adding truth to the text that's not actually there. It's wonderful when there's um, a narrative that gives you a direct teaching. In this moment, though, I think it is safe to assume that when Jesus says, I mean, this traumatic thing just happened to me, he's like, I, I need to get away to be alone to a solitary place. I I'm just, I I'm saying it this way. We need to make room for grieving so that we can grasp what it is that we have lost. Are you with me? Question, what's grieving? I put a definition in there. Let me just give it to you this way. Grief is the, the natural emotional response to experiencing loss. Here's a couple examples. The most prevalent is this one. When we talk about grieving, it's the loss of someone that you, you love. But it doesn't have to just be that. You can grieve the loss of health, yours or someone else's, through illness. You can grieve the loss of a friendship, a relationship, it could be they just moved on, or it could be through the process of divorce. It could be, in general, like the loss of your normal life because of an unexpected change. 
Now, psychologists have studied this and they've created what's called the stages of grief. It's this neat little tidy like stages and you just kind of go through this. Here it is, right? So there's this shock and denial and I circled like the five stages of grief. Some people say there's seven stages of grief. So if you follow the V, that's like the journey. You first hear and there's this denial and it goes down and like it creates disorder in your world. You could have anger, your guilt, bargaining with God. And like at some point of distress, your life turns and like, there's this upward motion then, right? There's this, there can be depression, loneliness, withdrawal, but the goal is to get this to this acceptance place where you're able to accept what it is that you've lost. And it's, it's awesome. There's just this great little like easy diagram that's like, well, okay, that's what grieving is. Let's just get through that, right? But then you start talking to people who are grieving and this diagram is actually more helpful. Yeah. Oh wait, there's not five, there's not seven steps. There's like, I don't know, 20 or 30 different things that you can, that can go on in your soul and you can respond to God. And it's like, it's not like this straight up and down. Listen, grieving is messy. It's complicated. It's unpredictable. So can I just say this? Creating room in your life, if you're going through some kind of loss to grieve, is essential. If not, it gets us stuck. It can also make us respond in ways that are super unhealthy. Seven chapters before this story took place, Jesus is giving a message, and this is what he said. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What a weird, wacky teaching. Blessed, happy, good for you. For you who mourn, for they will be comforted. I'm going to say it this way. I think what he's saying is that you get to experience God in a brand new way. If everything is happy, happy, joy, joy all the time, that is not life. And when you hurt, God has an opportunity to step into your life and show you comfort in a way that you never knew before. Um, in all the conversations and kind of coaching I've done with people over the years who are going through grief, this one word is used an awful lot, peace. Peace. Pastor, I don't know what it was. It was crazy and this, that, and the other. I was reading this story and, and somehow this peace came over me. And I think what they're describing is what's found in Philippians chapter four. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer, petition, meaning bring your hurt to God. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. And here it is, and the peace of God. Not the lack of hurt. Not the, oh, that didn't really matter to me anyways. Not the, hey, I'm over it, but this peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So let me show you what happened to Jesus' situation. Go back to chapter 14. Halfway through verse 13, it says this. Uh, hearing of this, now the hearing of this is that Jesus had left and gone without them to a solitary place. Hearing about this, the crowds followed him on foot from the town. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus could have said, are you kidding me? I got to get away. <laughs> Jesus could have said, get lost. Like, I need some me time, right? I'm grieving. My cousin was just murdered. Like, but he doesn't because I, I think it's interesting that he notices that they're bringing sick people to him. When you have sick people who are ill in your life, you are grieving. Think about it this way. Jesus is watching the grieving people come to him. And instead of going, I need me time, he had pity on them. And he had compassion on them. And so I'm going to say it this way. 
My point number two is that while we are grieving, we don't stop living. I got to be super careful with this. Because you remember the, the V that there's so many like messiness of the, all this. You might hear me say something in such a way that could be offensive to you because of the stage of grief you're at. Maybe you lost someone just two weeks ago and you're at the very raw place and you hear me say, hey, while we're grieving, we don't stop living. And you might be like, come here, pastor. I want to punch you in the nose right now. <laughs> I can't speak to everybody's situation. But when I look at this, Jesus could have stopped in the mission that God called him to. He could have said, you know what? I need a break. I need a timeout. Just no more right now. But he didn't. He knew that God had called him to something. And listen, Christians who live with purpose know that they're called to something. And I'm going to say this. We're going to go through grieving in our life. We're going to go through some kind of losses in our life. It's just guaranteed. All of us will. But yet God has called you to something. If you're a follower of Jesus, he called you to a mission. He's given you an assignment. There is, there's time to set aside time to make room for grieving, but we don't stop living. And I know both of those points sound like either end of the spectrum. Like, well, you want me to get back involved or you want me to create space to stop? Yes, both. You have to figure this out in your time with God to say, man, do I need to make room to grieve because I really haven't grieved what I've lost and it created a stuck or a hurt in my life that I, I'm responding in unhealthy ways? Figure it out. Or maybe you're stuck and stopped and you haven't gotten over this grieving and he's like, I called you to something. I called you to live for something and you need to re-engage in living in that mission. Um, again, I have to say this gently and be very careful with this. Jesus recognizes the need in the crowd, embraces the mission that God's called him to, and then look what happens next, verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to him. They said, this is a remote place. It's getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. You know this story, right? It's the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus takes one guy's lunch pail, opens it up. There's some loaves and fish in there, right? Look at what he does with this. Verse 17, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. He directed the people to sit down on the grass. Verse 19, taking the loaves and the two fish, he looks up to heaven. And what does it say? He gave thanks and he broke the loaves. He gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the people. And you know how the story ends. 5,000 people were fed that day. When we read one verse, we read and tell this story often in church of like, look, God provides. and We'll put it in the context of how it's written. John the Baptist is just murdered. Jesus gets, he tries to get alone. And instead of getting alone to grieve, the, the crowds that swarm him, he's like, no, let's take care of the crowds. I'll grieve later. And you'll see right at the end of the story, he goes back, he sends them all away and he has time to grieve later on. But in this moment, consider this. He takes the meager resources he has and he prays and gives God thanks. I think it's a narrative teaching that says this. I'll say it this way. Even in grieving, we can look for God's provision and be thankful. Are you grieving today? Have you been grieving But has your grieving robbed you 
of seeing the good things that God has for you, even if it's meager things, and that you can pause and still understand he's good to you and give him thanks? Come on. I think this is what this is illustrating. Now, there's a difference between what is true and what is wise to tell someone. I, I, I just try to distinguish this as a pastor to like, so what's true and what's pastorally responsible? Because when someone comes into your, your office and they're like, pastor, this just happened, it's tragic and I'm grieving. You don't look at them and say, well, what are the good things in your life you should be thankful for? So Christian, hear me. People will come to you and grieving. Don't be irresponsible. And start pointing to point number three. Just hurt with them. Because it's irresponsible to be like, hey, hey, you should be thankful. No, no, there's a time and a place for that. And it might not be the right timing. Um, Even in grieving, we can look to God's provision and be thankful. I, I mentioned that there's two places in the Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus is grieving. Let me show you the second one. It's communicated in this painting right here called Christ in Gethsemane. This is painted in 1886 by Heinrich Hoffmann. Uh, Quick observations about these paintings. Here it is. Most of the painting is dark, right? I don't know if you can tell, but in the the lower left-hand corner, there are thorn bushes underneath the rocks. Probably a symbol of despair, grief, and pain. That thorn branch in that lower left corner may be a symbol, a foreshadowing of the crown of thorns that would be pressed on Jesus' head the very following day. Now, there's two places where light shows up here. Often God, that's the symbol, the light is the symbol for God. It's in this upper left-hand corner, but notice that the presence of God symbolized by light, it's really far away. And compared to the rest of the painting, it's very, very small. God's presence seems small here. The other place of light is right around Jesus' head. Maybe the symbol that his mind and heart are at peace or he had clarity of thought, but notice where Jesus' eyes are looking. They're looking up. He's looking up to the light to, to try and get some kind of help. And his hands are folded as if he's praying. This painting was inspired by this scripture. Listen to it. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Then he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be, listen to these words, sorrowful and troubled. And listen to his words. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. I am so in anguish right now. I just feel like I'm going to die. You hear his pain. Now this is what he is feeling. But after acknowledging his feelings, he makes this unbelievable declaration of his trust in God that I think is a model for us. Verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed. Now, remember the picture, like he's kneeling. He's almost like got it all together. That's not actually how the text describes it. He literally falls down on his face in prayer. And he says these words, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. God, I don't want to do this. I know what's coming tomorrow. It is my death on the cross. And my answer is no, I don't want to do this. God, if there's any other way, take this cup, this suffering, this death from me. But then he doesn't stop there. He says this, not as I will, but as you will. In our grief, I'm going to say it this way. We recognize our sorrow and grief. Come, come to grips with it. Speak it. Put words to it. 
articulate what it is that you have lost and then ask for what you want. God, I want this. But we declare our trust in God, which means this. If God doesn't do the next chapter of my story, the next day of my story, the way that I want, I'm still committed to him because I know he's good. I know he loves me and I know he has a plan for my life. God, I'm in it with you because I know you're with me and I know you're good. So Jesus, he actually goes back and he prays this a second time. Father, it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. Listen, your life will follow one of two directions. Your life will either follow the direction of your feelings or the direction of your words. Don't don't make a mistake on this. I'm not saying feelings are bad. Feelings are amazing. God created them. I mean, you wouldn't know how big joy was if you didn't know what pain was. You wouldn't know the joy of a relationship if you didn't know the depth of loneliness. Feelings are fantastic, but feelings that go unchecked without wisdom could lead your life into a narrative that says, God is not good. God has left me. God has abandoned me, and my life is without hope. Those are your feelings speaking. And feelings without godly direction, without wisdom, without truth, can lead you down the wrong path. Now, if you are in a place of grieving today, I don't want you just to think about what you're thankful for or what it is that you've lost. I think my big invitation is this. I want to invite you to just declare your trust in God, that whatever road he has for you in the future, that you declare that he is with you, he is good, and you want him. I think that's about declaring our trust in him. Listen to this. I'm going to wrap it up with this fifth point that I think is found in this narrative story in verse 40. It says, then he returned to the disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you would not fall into such an interesting word, that you might not fall into, what's the word? Temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh, the flesh is weak. In this text, I think we find a warning about grieving. They're all grieving. They just don't know what, exactly what they're grieving for because they don't know that Jesus is about to go to the cross. Here's my warning. Whatever we turn to for comfort can become our temptation. Now, first note here, if you've ever been grieving and your friends didn't support you well, like, I came to you guys, like, pray for me, and you're sleeping, listen, Jesus gets you. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard if you're not going through the grieving to grieve with somebody because you don't know the depth of what they've gone through. Listen, Jesus gets you. People don't always know how to support you. They show up with a casserole, and you're like, oh, another casserole. Second, I think it's interesting that Jesus calls his disciples sleep a temptation. Sleep was their comfort. Grieving, it's miserable for everybody. Grieving is never fun. But going through our grieving and turning to God gives us comfort and peace. But I want to be really clear about this. Our comforts can become our temptations. Give you some really clear examples. To numb our pain, we may innocently grab some sleeping pills. And I'm not saying that's wrong. 
Some people, you, you might grab some booze, medication. But instead of a temporary help, it starts becoming a part of our natural rhythm to doing life, and it becomes a temptation for us because it is the thing that we look to to comfort us. It's not the only example. There's lots of others. I mean, some people, they can turn to unhealthy relationships for comfort. God didn't put that person in your life. (laughs) You're actually seeking that in a really unhealthy way. And I'm not going to go into explain all of that. But we pursue people. We pursue relationships for comfort at times. Um, A few weeks ago, my son, Austin, uh, he posted this TikTok video. I'm not going to show it to you. Uh, because I don't have TikTok and whatever. Someone showed it to me. Um, Austin lives in Phoenix, and uh, some of you know him. You've been around for a while. Um, growing up here at the church, he's this short, skinny little kid. Um, he has spent a lot of time in the gym in the last couple of years and kind of looks like a beast now. He, he would call himself a gym rat, right? So he made this video for other gym rats, and he simply said this, the common thread that we all have, you gym rats, that you're in that gym looking in the mirror, trying to improve your physique all the time. What drives me is the same thing that drives you. It's our brokenness. There's something about, and my son's made TikTok videos in the past that I'm like, all right, that is not a good illustration. Or like, wow, okay, son, a little less time in the mirror. All right. But on this one, he said, um, the thing that drives all of us who do this thing of working out and spending too much time in the gym is your brokenness because we're compensating and finding comfort for some kind of brokenness in our life. I just thought it was so interesting that he then says this. I mean, this is just throwing it out social media, but I found more comfort and more peace in my relationship with Jesus Christ. And I don't know who needs to hear that, but I just think some of you gym rats, this might be an opportunity for you. And I was like, that's my boy, <laughs> right? I mean, I just, chest, my chest is out, swelling with pride, like, because he got it. I don't care if you're a gym rat or you're a workaholic or you're an overachiever or your academics make you stand tall or make you feel better about yourself. The truth is that an awful lot of us are compensating and grieving in an unhealthy way when we really need to bring our stuff to Jesus and say, God, I'm hurting over this. I'm gonna put my finger on the loss. I'm gonna create room to figure out what it is I've lost. I'm also not gonna let myself be identified and defined by my my loss. My life is bigger than the thing that I'm grieving right now. Wisdom to my feelings is that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There's a process to grief of acceptance and there is joy and hope and life on the other side. And Jesus can walk you through that. In this, my invitation to you is just simply this. Do you need to bring anything that you grieve to Jesus today? Let's go back to that um, original picture for just a moment. This woman grieved her loss. I'll create a little bit of the story. By pulling that dress out of the trunk. I'm just wondering if she's saying, I pulled this out because I've buried it in here and I haven't grieved it. It's time to pull it out the trunk. Question for you as we wrap this up. What's in your trunk? 
I know this sounds so weird. It's like, yes, I am saying everyone's got junk in the trunk, okay? <laughs> it's true, though. We all got stuff that we're grieving. And I, I don't know if today's message is going to help you walk with somebody else in compassion, the kind of compassion Jesus had on the crowd. Or if today you're going to actually bring something out, and I want to say this carefully because I need to say this. If there has truly been something in your life that has been traumatic, and I mean the word trauma, that if you take it out of the trunk, you don't know how to deal with it and put it back in the trunk. Can I point you to some people who will know how to help you with that? Because your friends won't know, your family won't know. When you unpack trauma, it can be very, very painful and, and, and unhealthy because you just don't, no one knows how to deal with it with you. And once it's out, you, you can't put it back. So there are counselors who are skilled at that. But that's probably the minority of people in the room that are there at that place. A lot of us, we just need to admit that there was something that happened and we need to grieve it by seeing what was lost, acknowledging the, the loss and the feelings that we have about it, and then turning around and saying, but Lord, I, I trust in you that you're leading me to a better day. And you might have to do this. What are you turning to for comfort and peace? Because you might be turning to something that maybe it's not a bad thing necessarily, but when that replaces the comfort and peace you're seeking in Christ, it is not a healthy thing. And maybe it's time to put our finger on that today. And just finally this, how are you declaring your trust in God? I'm going to read this verse to you. You'll see it. It's from Isaiah 26. It says, you will keep in perfect peace. Not kind of peace. Not a little bit of peace. God, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast. Because what? Because they trust in you. Today, you might need to inform your feelings that God loves you in your hurt, that he has not abandoned you, that he has not left you. He has still called you and equipped you to a mission in your life, even in the midst of your loss. And today, maybe you can give thanks. Wherever you're at in that whole process, I just tried to describe a little bit of it, but you're going to have to spend time with Jesus to say, God, where am I at in all of this? Here's the one thing I know. Every single one of us in this room are either grieving today, we have grieved in the past, but we will grieve in the future. Today, do you want to unpack some of these tools so that God might be able to heal you and help you become more like Jesus? Let's bow our heads and pray. God, I am so weirdly excited about preaching your word today because I think there's hope in this, God. And if, God, if there's people here today that have not grieved with hope, I pray that you would awaken their souls to that today. And I know this is kind of a shotgun approach about, God, what are you going to do with all of this? And I, I pray that you would, in a very powerful way, open our eyes to our next steps with you that that picture of the wedding dress this week would be the symbol for the, the fact that you will carefully, gently walk us through our grieving. Show us what's next, God. And if you want that, you want that healing and that help and that hope, would you simply say, amen?